Hello everybody and welcome to this wonderful award-winning audio sensation that is What's the Story Podcast. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Merrigan. Graham, can you please put to bed the rumours that are circulating regarding you and a well-known celebrity who has been touted as sending you flirtatious text messages. What are you on about? We all know about the rumours, Graham. Can you please just confirm or deny? I don't know what you're talking about. Is that a denial or is that you trying to just brush this off? That's a a denial. I don't know what you're on about. So Dermot Bannon won't be coming to your house to do home improvements. (laughs) What the fuck? I heard heard you were scheming behind Gary Mackle's back, Dermot Bannon, to do up your living room. Not a chance. (laughs) I'd rather Gary do it. (laughs) How are you, my friend? Are you keeping well? Yeah, good. I didn't know where you were going with that. I was like, what the hell? To be honest, neither do I. Neither do I. I went back to the gym tonight with Lindsay Doyle. I'm wrecked. Lindsay Danger Doyle, how's she keeping? It's great, yeah. They're in the new premises down in Monkstown. Yeah, yeah, the lab has moved. The lad Damo, Austin, and Lindsay have moved down to Monkstown. The lab uh, performance and nutrition. Fantastic individuals, all three of them, and an even better team of people, if I don't say so myself. Absolutely. Well, very well said. Thank you. Good. Glad to hear that. That was your first night back since November. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, listen, man. I massage. I, I massage. I, uh, I strained my pectoral muscle, Daniel. You strained a pec, did you, Graham? <laughs> yeah. In ja- in January, so I was off for that. Listen, listen. You wouldn't be the first single man to strain your pecker. Um. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what have we got lined up this week, Danny? Uh, we have a fascinating one for you this week lads um, I went back down an Everest rabbit hole again like I did a number of years ago and you might remember we talked to a man called Ian Taylor who climbed Mount Everest this time I decided I'll go bigger I'll go bolder I'll go better and there's a Longford man by the name of Paul Devaney who has well he's got an interesting challenge and that's to climb all of the world's highest summits all seven of them one for each continent He's managed six out of seven, so we invited him on the podcast. He very graciously accepted. Um, and you can check out irish7summits.com to find out more about it. Or you could just listen to him tell a story, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so let's do that then. Here we go. Here he is. It's delighted that this week we have uh, one of the driving forces of the Ireland Seven Summits Challenge, uh, an amateur mountaineer and expedition challenge group I, I don't know i'll let him tell you more about it but they've completed six to seven summits they've been going at it for years and i stumbled upon it online and was like this is just a fascinating thing so we decided to reach out very kindly paul from Irish seven summits joined us paul thanks man for coming on man pleasure um look let's like tell us about how the seven summits came to be the challenge not the actual mountains that could take a while to tell us but uh, <laughs> how, how the challenge came and how you got got the idea of doing it 
Um, well, the challenge started in 2005. Um, I was working over in Asia for the year, and when I was on my way back at the end of the year, um, someone in the office suggested I should go to base camp, and I'd never climbed anything really more than the stairs. So I thought, well, I'll do a bit of training. I was playing, I was playing Gaelic football in in Hong Kong at the time, so I was reasonably fit. So I thought, well, I'll give this a go. So I got the gear, went to Kathmandu, and myself and a Sherpa headed up to base camp. And you know, seven days later, there we are in base camp. And I'd read some books on the way up there. I'd read about the seven summits, and you're stood there with Everest right in front of you. And Lutz says to your right, and you're just surrounded by this panorama of, an, of the most amazing mountains in the world. Um, and it, it just, it's, it's like a virus. It just gets into you. And you think, this is interesting. And the first thing that I found interesting was I never thought ordinary people could just go and do this sort of thing. Because I'd never, I'd never put base camp into my brain as something that you just go and do. I always thought that that was people who were, you know, extremely experienced when they'd done that sort of thing. And it's a trek, and anyone who who trains for it, you know, if you train for six months, you'll be able to go do do base camp, and if your body's you know allows you to do it, and yeah, I just got up there and thought this is amazing, this is accessible. I didn't know people could do this. Um, what's next? And I'd read about the seven summits. I got back. I got a whole lot of guys from our class at UL, um, and decided, well, who wants to do this? And five people put up their hand and. We decided to train and give. The idea was to give Kilimanjaro a go. I didn't actually mention the seven summits to any of them because that would be just. I mean, to me, it was ludicrous. Never mind saying it to other people. Um, but we we got the gang together. We trained. We went and done Kili, and like Kili is a hard peak to do. It's very accessible, and a lot of people do it. But the summit day on Kili is objectively really hard. When you You're say going, accessible, uh, you said it twice there in relation to the first um, P, uh, base camp. Base camp, sorry, uh, and then Kilimanjaro. What what does that mean? Like, I suppose accessible in that you don't need to. There isn't a high barrier in terms of the level of mountaineer and experience that you need in order to go do it. Uh, so it's not a technical mountain. Uh, so you, you can go to base camp and you don't take any technical gear out of your out of your backpack and you don't hold on to any um, uh, any ropes. You're not doing anything technical per se. You're simply tracking, putting you know one foot for the other up a pathway. So it's accessible in that regard. It's not accessible. No, I, would, at all, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's not wheelchair accessible. No, it, it's not. <laughs> it's not accessible in a whole lot of other ways. That there's a few folks have gone up Kilimanjaro. On the, the wheelchair folks have gone up to Kilimanjaro in the past, but it, these places are not readily accessible. Yeah. Um, I think in the future it will be because they're building roads and routes into all of the villages up the Kumba to base camp. So I can see a time where you actually will be able to, it will be properly accessible. But no, accessible, I, I'm describing really is just not technical. Yeah, yeah. So, so effectively, anybody with a determination could technically get fairly high up killy or into base camp yeah so long as they don't fall over and hurt themselves so long as they don't fall over and hurt themselves and if they're lucky enough to have the right physiology that they don't get altitude sickness quickly and they don't get it bad now whether you're one of those people it, it's not really a function of how fit you are although mm. the fitter you are the better your chances are but you could be the fittest person in the world you could be a marathon runner 
and you get halfway up Kilimanjaro and you'll double over in pain with altitude sickness and you're done. So altitude sickness affects very different people in very different ways. And there's no way that you know whether you're one of the good people or one of the not so good people with altitude until you go. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, and but, like, I, go on, Merle, go on. No, 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 you go. No, age for beauty, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were saying um, that uh, the GAA uh, might have complimented uh, your kind of physical and stamina and stuff like that, like when you first meet a, a, a Sherpa, um, what what is their kind of stamina and their is it just because they live in the area that are that they're okay for it or? Yeah, the, the Sherpa are an ethnic group that have come from the Tibetan Plateau. So they're genetically they have come from a people that have spent you know ten thousand years living on the Tibetan Plateau. So their 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 system is able to produce far more blood cells. So they've got far more red blood cells in their body than you or I will. So they've got far more ability to transfer oxygen and energy through their body than I have, for example. I have to build up that acclimatization as I go up the mountain. And no matter how good I get and no matter how long I spend up there, I won't be able to hold a candle to them. So, you know, your Sherpa will run ahead of you and they'll be stood at the corner, maybe having a cigarette, waiting for you to come <laughs> puffing and panting up, up the roof to get to them. So they, they, have, they, they have a natural capability in their body uh, that comes from the fact that they have, you know, evolved as a people in the Tibetan plain for for tens of thousands of years. And and but when you were when you're starting all this off, when you know you, Killy being, you know, summit number one, did you start doing things for charity straight away, or was that one more of a kind of getting a feel for the whole thing, and before you decided on going after the other six as well? Well, we um we didn't know if I didn't know if any of us would get up Killy to be blunt um. So I didn't say anything until we got down off Killy. Um, and when we were down off Killy, we were having a beer after down at the down in the village at the bottom. And I said to the lads, you realize we've done one of the seven summits. And that kind of has the effect of people going, well, what the hell is he talking about? What are these summits? What's the next one? We've done one. We might as well see if we can do a second. That sort of thing gets into people's brains. Then the charity bit of it, we don't do this for charity. We do this for okay. for the fun of it. Um, but we, we align ourselves with a charity for each one because these mountains are a great way of getting people, you know, towards donating to charity and giving to charities. Um, whatever we we, we, um, we collect for the charity goes entirely to the charity. We don't do any split yeah. thing with our, with, our, with our trips, but we, we do it for our own fun and then we do the charity thing as a kind of a secondary effect. Cool. So it's a nice little byproduct of yeah. what you guys are doing. Yeah. Um, so... So Kilimanjaro done, you've kind of planted the seed with the lads there in terms of, that's one down, lads, what you reckon? <laughs> what, like, how long then does it take to plan mission two, or, or what's the process behind it? Because, yeah, like, we, we had Ian Taylor on about four years ago. He he climbed Everest a good while ago. Um, and kind of listening to how the whole thing was planned even but was fascinating to me. But when you're potentially planning to kind of do this one and then go and after that we've got another one coming and you know what what's the process behind it well we when we got down off Killy, we realized the next obvious mountain to do on the list was elbrus which is in russia but elbrus is a big cold icy mountain and we had almost no experience in the extreme cold so between us and elbrus we had to kind of lay out a plan over a 12-month period where we were going to get winter skills courses in Scotland, where we were going to get some alpine skills 
out in the Alps, and then we were going to be able to jump on to Elbrus if we had enough cold condition experience under our belts because we're going to have to get new gear we were going to have crampons on our boots for the first time we'd never use those we were going to have an ice axe in our hand for the first time never use that so there was a whole level of winter skills preparation not just on getting the gear what is the gear how do you use the gear how do you do ice axe arrests if you slip how do you use the crampons that are on your feet how do you not trip on them all those sort of things had to fit in that 12 months between when we came back from um from Killy and then went to Elbrus. So you're mentioning a so completely different change of equipment then. So when you're saying crampons, they're the things you stick on your boot to basically hook you into the, or give you kind of hooks in the ice kind of, this right. is a very bad way of explaining, I think, but whatever. Um, is, is it actually harder with, with the, and learning to use those equipment or is it just an adjustment you make? It's an adjustment to your pace because you're walking in a very different way. Uh, you're walking in a kind of a Frankenstein way where you're you're intentionally pulling your feet up and placing them back down rather than just walking. And when you start using them, I've done a lot of my training in the Peak District up around uh, Sheffield and that sort of area. And, you know, when you start using them for the first time, you trip yourself up an awful lot. You catch them in your in in the bottom of your pants and in your so you're constantly like either tearing the stuff that you're wearing or tripping on them so you've just yeah. got to get that that intentional um pulling up of your feet and placing back down your feet right you know so that it's not a natural thing so, and you, so you're, you're trying to learn all this and while you're trying to you, you guys are amateurs as well so you're, amateurs, you're trying to you're trying to hold down at nine to five as well while doing this like yeah, so we're, we're basically using all of our weekends in the wintertime, just get out onto the hills, just get out onto anything you can. And because you're, you're, you're going to be wearing plastic boots, which are kind of like ski boots, right? So you're wearing effectively something like a ski boot with a crampon on it. So all of the movement in your ankle is now completely curtailed. So you're, you're getting used to all of that sort of new movement. We had to do that in the weekends from about October time onwards, especially through January and February on the dirtiest weekends you can imagine. Weather-wise, just get out and get into the hills if it's safe and just try and do as much as you can do. But we, we also took like, you know, went and got the got the experts in Scotland to yeah. teach us exactly what we needed to know about rescue, about what to do if we get stuck in a storm, about all of this other sort of safety in the mountains that we didn't have that we needed to do. So we headed up to Fort William and we spent a while up there doing winter skills courses, being taught this stuff and, you know, just doing no talking and lots of listening for ages to work out, well, what do we not know? And do we still think that we have enough readiness now to go for the next peak or do we need more? So then... In what year did you go to Russia and, and do Elbrus? We done Russia in 2008. And was it successful first time out for you? Did you hit the summit straight away? Or? We did. We got lucky with the weather and we hit the summit straight away. Um, we, we, we went as the team had kind of gone from um, the five of us that had been on the first peak to the four of us going to Elbrus. And the four of us that went to Elbrus, 50% of the team didn't make it to the top. For various reasons, one guy got just exhausted on mm. summit day. Uh, one of the other lads started to feel a little bit of frost nip in his fingers. And, you know, he would have shook it out, no problem. But we were so amateur and so 
early on in the process at that point that when you get something like that, you know, it can scare the living daylights out of you. So he, he didn't he didn't have that experience at that point in time to know, look, just wriggle, wriggle, wriggle. And about an hour later, it would have been fine. And he took fright and thought, well, that's enough. And he turned back. And two of us, myself and a lad called Nyla Burns from Kildare, we kept going to the summit and, and we were lucky with the weather and we made it. So he just turns back, like where, like does he turn back and go down the hill on his own? No, we'll have, we had a couple of guides with us. A lot of these mountains you you have to do with guides. Some of them you can do on your own, but it's advised to do with guides. I think when you're this early on in the thing, and you're as amateur as we are, even with the bit of skill that we did have, you know, get the guides, have them beside you, and learn from them. There's there's no there's nothing to be gained by trying these things on your own that early on unless you have a heck of a lot more skill than we had at that point. So we had the guide there partly because we want to learn from the guide. And so one of the guides bought the lads back down. The other one turned around and went with us for the summer. You know, so, you were saying there earlier on that after, I think you said after Killy, you said to your friends, um, that's one of, of, of the six summits or six summits left. What did they buy you in straight away? I don't think they'd bought into the idea of the seven. They certainly bought into a rolling idea of let's do another one of these. Right. And, so did you have to just say it then every time you did a uh, <laughs> summit? It's number two done. <laughs> and let's talk. But I was partly talking myself into number three because like I didn't at this stage, even with two done and with Elbrus done, you know, we've done Killy and Elbrus. So both of them are, are no more than, you know, 5,800 is the highest of those two. So they're not, we haven't even got above 6,000 meters yet. Um, in my mind, Everest is a ludicrous, you know, possibility. Um, the one in Alaska, Denali, which is the next big, big jump, um, that one is a serious expedition. And we're looking at that and thinking, God, we need an awful lot more than we've got today to be able to do that one. And I'm not even going to think or talk about Everest because that's just that's implausible at this point. So they're they're in they're on your radar, but they're not. You, realistically, you're not in a position to think that you could be capable of doing them. You're just buzzing after the summer and you're just the adrenaline. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you, you've you've conquered Africa, you, you've conquered Europe, and then you, you mentioned there Alaska, which would be North America. Was that the next step then, or did you go a different route? Uh, we were, um, so that was 2008 summer. We were going to go at the end of the year and try the highest in South America, which was the Aconcagua, the highest in the Andes. Um, now, Aconcagua didn't require the big expedition preparation that the one in North America did, because the one in Alaska is a big, big, big expedition over three weeks, and you're basically out on the snow and ice for the entire time. The one in South America is slightly less time, so less than two weeks, um, and it's not really ice and snow except on the summit. So it's more about altitude. So we wanted to see, having been to Kili, which has a really hard and long slog of a summit day, having been on Elbrus and had the cold, Right, let's go high and see how we how we fare with a bit of real extreme altitude because seven thousand meters is is pretty serious altitude. Yeah. Uh, so that was our next one in two thousand and eight. At the end of the year, we got about halfway up that. I got a call to tell me my dad had died, so we had to come Jesus. back down the mountain and we had to get back home. And it all happened all of a sudden, and it wasn't expected. So we kind of had to curb that mission, and the the seven summits kind of got parked for about six months. Then after that. Yeah, yeah, understandably, Jesus, yeah. yeah. So uh, how how do, do, do you deal with do you deal with on the mountain, or is it just get me home, get me home? It's get me home. We were um, we'd come back from doing our acclimatization hike, and it'd been a long, hard day, and we were knackered. 
and we were coming back into camp and which was at about I don't know about maybe five thousand ish meters and there was a lad at the head of camp who called out my name and I thought well okay somebody knows me that's a bit unusual um, and then he said you know you need to phone home such and such a person called and I knew because this was the first mountain I had set out a list of if something happens you know contact this person then this yeah. person and this person and I thought it would be because of me you know uh, yeah, not yeah. because of something else um, but yeah I made the call home um, got to a phone made the call home and uh, yeah there's nothing you can do after that bar okay how do I get out of here now and um, next morning they got me a helicopter straight back to Mendoza which is the nearest town and then it was an expedition from there to get to Santiago Chile to get to New York to get to Dublin to get to Longford um, so it I got back pretty quickly considering the circumstances but um, yeah you find yourself quite lonely and in, in the wrong corner of the world when these things happen but there's no good time I guess yeah, and, and did you have to travel back alone or did the other guys travel back with you? Or I travelled back on my own and then Niall, um, who was with me on that expedition, he followed a couple of days after because they could only get one person into a helicopter that morning. Um, so I grabbed a tiny bag of whatever I could fit into the helicopter because of weight, left yeah. all of my gear and everything, and then Niall basically bought everything back down and he followed a few days later. Jesus, yeah, so I can only imagine that. Like, I mean, that, that has to have been psychologically grueling whatever about trying to build yourself up to climb up a mountain but then going through that and then for something like that to have happened to, to bring you back down essentially oh yeah is, you yeah. know and it creates yeah. an association as well between you and that peak like yeah you, you kind of it's always there like i did go back eventually to climb the mountain but you know every step on the way back you know you're remembering that this is the place i was in when you know so yeah, um yeah. It, it yeah these, these things happen i guess but um yeah, so that was the end of that mission, and um, I didn't really feel like going up too many mountains when I got home. Of course. And life had kind of reoriented, and uh, so I took a, a, about six months off, and then in the summer of 2009, we decided to go into the Alps and do a little bit of alpine training, and we'd done some alpine courses to try and increase our, our alpine skills. So basically, crevasse rescue, um, lead roping, being in rope teams, using the gear that's on your belt that looks really good, but actually now it's time to use it, you know? Um, so it, it was it was really, really beneficial stuff. And at the end of that training course, we, we summited um, Mont Blanc, which is a really, okay, yeah. really, really beautiful mountain. Um, and we felt, you know, I felt, well, okay, well, this is, we're slowly now getting back into it. So let's, have, let's plan that for 2010, we're gonna have a go at two peaks effectively. One of them is easy, one of them is extremely hard. The easy one is the little baby mountain in Australia, Kosciuszko, and the really hard one was going to be Denali in Alaska, which, as far as we were concerned, was a massive step up from anything we'd done before. Um, so, yeah, we, we went to Australia. We'd done the little one nice and easy in February, um, but all of our training was towards Denali. When, when you say, sorry, Paul, to cut across, when you say little one, what, what height are we talking um, the one in um, in Australia is about two and a half thousand meters, so it's it's okay, yeah. it's it's really weak. There's there's a lot of debate about um, the seventh of the seven summits. <clears throat> so depending on which list you do, there's two lists. There's the Bass list and there's the Messner list. And the first guy to do the seven summits in 1985 was Dick Bass. He's an American, and he basically looked at it from a continental perspective and said, right, what is the highest peak on every physical continent? Um, so you look at Australia and the continent of Australia, the highest peak is Kosciuszko. Now, if you broaden that continent out into a geographical area and look at Oceania, 
the highest peak is actually in Papua New Guinea, um, which is a peak called Carton's Pyramid. Uh, so the, the the mountaineer Reinhold Messner, a couple of years after Dick Bass, he decided he was doing that one instead of Kosciuszko. Now, geographically, there's no claim there. It's basically, it's a higher and harder peak, and that's why Messner went for it. So some people yeah. do the seven summits with that peak, which is fairly hard to get to at the moment, and then other people do it with the landmass of Australia with Kosciuszko. So at that time, we were doing it with, with the Kosciuszko peak. Okay. And so you you conquered that one because it was nice and easy, like a little nice trip up to Sugarloaf. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and and then you went on to your the, the big bad one in Alaska. Mm. So uh, you, you talked about that as three weeks of constantly out in the snow and ice, and what I can only imagine are miserable conditions overall. How yeah. long is the how long is a usual expedition if that's three weeks? So let's see, uh, Aconcagua is about two weeks. Um, if you go to Kilimanjaro, you can be there and back in 10 days. Um, if you go to Elbrus, you can be there and back in seven. Um, so, yeah, you, you, depending on the mountain, you know, you, you could, it could be a week, it could be two weeks. I just come back from Ecuador. I was over there for about 12, 13 days. So, yeah, anything that's big and icy is going to take you some time. So the one in Alaska was, they, they, you, you go up to a place called Talkeetna in Alaska and you fly from there onto the glacier and they land you on the glacier, they throw you out of the plane, they take off and they come back three weeks later. So you're not getting back to anywhere until they come back for you. <laughs> and you've got no phone. Like this was the, this was 2010. So yeah, there was iPhones back then, but they took all of our phones off us at the airport, put them in a bag, and that was the end of that. So we had a sat phone with us, but you weren't on your phone, you weren't on social media, you were nothing. Yeah. So you're on the ice, plane's gone, it's behind you, and basically you've got a sled that you're tied to, you've got a big bag on the sled, you've got a big backpack on your back, and off you go for three weeks. It's uh, So it's, re- it's a real adventure in that respect. Like It really felt to us like... We felt like imposters because this looked like this looked like a, this is a real adventure here. Um, but yeah, so you progressively make your way through the camps, and you're, you're dragging this sled with you. You build a camp, um, and you might stay two days at a camp. And what you'll do then is you'll you'll pack your sled with a load of things that you need for the next few days ahead of you. You bring them on to the next camp. You dig a hole. You leave them there. You mark it, and then you come back to your own camp sleep that night, then pack up the entire tents and everything the next day and bring that to the next area. So you you go to every next location in two runs, if you like. You bring everything you need, then you bring you and all of your gear. And so you're progressively doing that until the mountain gets too steep for the sled, and then you dump the sled. Uh, As you're going, the supplies are kind of shrinking because your appetite's shrinking as well. (laughs) Um, And then you're eventually making it up onto the ridge to high camp and and then heading for the summit. Um, But it's a it's a mountain that has tremendously bad weather at times, and a lot of people that try it don't don't succeed. I think that the success rate is less than fifty percent. Um, so a lot of people a lot of people get up there, and through no fault of their own, the weather is is just awful, and they're not able to go for it. You mentioned there that like kind of the forty you're into it, kind of you know the sled's getting lighter, but your appetite isn't great. Really, is that the altitude that's affecting your appetite? Because obviously, the higher you go, the more calories you presumably need because your body's just 
doesn't know what you're doing to it essentially exactly so, so you, you're kind of fighting a battle where you're trying to feed yourself as much as you physically can while your body is progressively shutting down your digestive system because it hasn't enough oxygen to run all of the parts of your body together so the higher you go into let's say mid to extreme altitude um, you're getting less oxygen into your body so because there's less concentration of oxygen so you're when you breathe in there's less oxygen going into your lungs yeah. and that oxygen is getting converted into energy so there's less energy traveling around your body than there would normally be let's say at sea level and because that's the case your body has to figure out how to adapt and how to balance things back up your brain uses 50 percent of the oxygen that goes into your body so it has to keep your brain alive it has to keep your heart and your lungs alive so it goes for all of the primary organs that it has to try and feed and sustain and after that then it'll do everything else so when it comes into a, a kind of a preto of all of the priorities of what it needs to shut down in order to maintain everything else it slows down things that are heavy on oxygen but not necessary to sustain you and keep you alive so your digestive system it'll slow it down so you'll get less hungry as you go um, um would the one in Alaska be, uh, would that be a summit that people would use supplementary oxygen or is this one that you just go at this is one that you just go at. You shouldn't need supplementary oxygen um, below 7,000 meters. Below, really, you don't need it below 7,500 okay. meters to any great degree. So this one is just a tad below 7,000 meters. So you shouldn't need any. Nobody on this mountain should have it except for emergency. Um, okay. Well, what's, so, at what point? What's the, what's the food like? Like what, on these expeditions, especially the three weaker. Like, <laughs> what's the nutrition? What what are you eating? It was brilliant. Um, it's as good as how much you want to carry. That's another way of looking at it. So uh, if, you're, if your bag and your sled is really packed up, you're going to have a good time because you've got lots of food. We had great food. Some of it, the higher you go, it gets freeze-dried and crap. Um, but lower down, like we built kitchens. So, you know, we dug a big hole in the ground. We erected like big tents. So we had shovels with us and everything. We we're digging holes. We we're building, you know, fires. We were cooking food. We, we made pizza at one stage. Um, so we had decent food, partly because we hauled it up with us and we built all the, the fires and built all of the kitchen and mess tents to do it. It's a bit of effort, but actually the building of this stuff, the, the, the guides that we were with, they're very clever. They'll give you the shovel rather than do it themselves um, <laughs> because they want you to actually wear yourself out because it's very good for you at altitude to work at altitude. Your lungs get used to the greater demand at a higher altitude so the more work you can get them to do the more adapted th those lungs will be the next day and the day after that and the day after that so we would dig the big holes and then put the put the mess tent in and then eat eat and we ate fairly well i'd say up until you get to the high camp and then in high camp you know they're going to chuck you in some ramen noodles and say you know how about that <laughs> so <laughs> you can just you can just picture how appetizing that is you've just had pizza and, all, and then you know you're sitting there like oh great yeah watery coca noodles <laughs> Uh, at what point then and just just to jump back because when, when you're saying about kind of you know anything below kind of seven seven and a half thousand you shouldn't need supplementary oxygen at what point do you start to become at risk of not just altitude sickness but the more serious kind of problems that that can result in you know ultimately fatalities on the mountain so it 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 varies in terms of how it will affect the individual. So some people will go to two and a half thousand meters and they'll feel sick as a dog and they will not be able to recover from it until they go down further. So you, some people might fly to Costco to do, you know, one of the treks in South America 
and it might be an easy enough trek for most people and they'll get sick the second they land at the airport. So it, it depends. So, at you know, at 2,000 meters or 2,500 meters, you're going to feel effects. Some people yeah. will feel a small headache. Some people will, it'll feel like a hangover. Um, they might sleep it off. Some people will take a little bit of Diamox and it just might, the effects might then wear off as they adapt. Um, and then as you go up through 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 meters, the effects just become more acute. You, at 6,000 meters, you've basically got you know, 50% of your lung capacity and you've got almost half the oxygen concentration. So it affects some people in very different ways. Um, some folks are just naturally able to deal with the change and they can adapt slowly to it. And other people just get horribly sick and they might go to bed that night, wake up the next morning and be 100%, but they might wake up and they're still, you know, in pain and they have to go yeah. back down. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's one of them that it, it kind of, I don't know, I went down a rabbit hole before of like just going down just everything on Everest and just reading whatever I could and some of the stories and some of the kind of things you hear there. So I'm kind of curious then, but as you were saying, it could affect somebody at 2,000 metres or, you know, there's fellas who could almost, you know, run up a mountain, no bother to them at all and they'd be kind of just, you know, yeah, yeah all right, I'm, I'm uh, grand. Like. And the other, the other element is that you could be, let's say you were going to base camp, you could go to base camp this year arrive at base camp, feel horrible, feel dreadfully sick, come back down, go home, come back the next year, go to base camp with exactly the same training in exactly the same place and be absolutely fine. Um, So it depends on a lot of conditions. Some of it depends on the weather as well because the atmospheric pressure has an effect. So the the altitude effect that you feel is from two things. It's either from the oxygen concentration starting to get thinner or the pressure starting to change. So the more, you, the higher you go, the less atmosphere you have weighing down on you. So the, you know, the less atmospheric pressure exists. So when there's less atmospheric pressure, you know, your brain is sitting in a fluid, your lungs are sitting in a fluid. Those things react differently when the pressure changes. So people yeah. can have a real reaction where they get either what's called a pulmonary um, edema or they edema. get a cerebral edema. Yeah. So they, they, they have the effects either on their lungs or their brain because of the pressure. So some people are very acutely affected by the pressure more so than the than the air, the lack of oxygen. Some people are more affected by the hypoxia or the oxygen effect more so than the pressure. And it's really hard to tell. It, you can't diagnose in advance what somebody is going to, you know, be more predisposed to. And if, at any point when you were climbing, now I, I know you said it's kind of it's less than seven thousand meters, but when you were conquering Alaska, did did you have any effects at all from? The, the high altitude or did you kind of say actually no I'm, I'm i'm coping well here like i'm thriving a little bit i we were coping well the whole way till we got to we got to the summit ridge and we're going across the summit ridge to the summit and everything feels great got up on top felt 100 percent, took our photos and then when i was heading back down about maybe a half hour into the descent I, that's where i started to feel it and i just i lost all the power in my legs and i was just exhausted um well wow. Now, I can't tell how much of that was, you know, altitude related and how much of that was exhaustion because while I trained whatever amount I trained, I probably could have done with training more again. Um, Mm. You you always have to train more for the way back down than people think because it always takes more out of you than you think it's going to take. Um, And I, I found the coming back down to high camp extraordinarily difficult and slow and I was quite slow on the way back down and then once I got into the high camp and had to sleep and got up the next morning 100% again so I did feel it on that one for sure and I felt it um, you know the year after on Aconcagua as well so I have had moments where I can feel the effects of altitude 
um, and you know there are different contributors to that so I'm not immune to it yeah yeah so you conquered at this stage then so was that that was summit three summit four that was summit number four four so then you're you're looking at it and you're kind of going all right now now we're more than halfway there yeah we were very surprised that we got up and back down Denali we, we kind of weren't expecting to come out of that as well as we did so we get down to the bottom and we're thinking geez that's four done like we might have a shot we might might have a shot at doing this you know so at that stage i think we start to believe right this might be real we might start looking at this yeah. as a longer term thing rather than just a short term thing so at that point we still hadn't done back in Kagua. we hadn't been you know up to seven thousand meters and we thought well it's time to get that done so we, we put that in for 2011 we went back at the end of 2011 and basically went up that same route up Aconcagua, got to the summit. Um, we, we'd we been in a, in a team of about 10 of us, I think. Um, and the other team we were with, their guides got sick early on and got pneumonia. So they had to merge the two teams. Yeah, we, we, we got to our first camp and um, the way they do it, because there's so much gear trying to get the base camp, they use mules to bring some of the gear to the first camp. So all of the gear that you're going to use long-term at base camp. So you carry as much as you can, and then the mules are bringing some of the longer-term stuff that you're going to have at your base camp. And the mules didn't go. They weren't sent off. So we were at our first camp, and then nothing was there. There was no tents. There was no nothing. So we're waiting for all of our equipment to arrive, um, and it took hours and hours and hours and hours. And in the meantime, it started to rain, and it rained on everyone badly. Uh, And some people got quite sick, and some of the guides got pneumonia. So we ended up, of the two teams had to merge together, we ended up with about 17 people in this mega team. And when we went for the summit, uh, there's a part on the summit ridge, or just before you get to the summit ridge, called the Canaletta, and it's kind of loose rock for a couple of hours. And it, it, it can be awful because it's like two steps forward, three steps back, two steps forward, four steps back. It's just, it, it, it pulls the all of the goodness out of the whole thing because your mind at this stage is tired and exhausted, you're nearly finished. And this thing just wears you down. So we arrived at the Canaletta and it was frozen. So we were lucky. So we made some good progress on that. Um, We sat down at one stage to take a rest and some food. And 17 people sat down and seven people got up. And the rest just couldn't put one foot in front of the other. Now, you think, right, you're two weeks into this thing. You're nearly there. Like you can see the top. Would you not just suck it up, you know? But like sucking sucking it up requires people to do something that they physically can't do at that point in time. They physically can't get out and put one foot in front of the other. Are you trying to motivate them when they're, when they're giving up? Yeah, you're, you're trying to motivate them, but you're wary that if you motivate somebody too heavily at high altitude, you can pull them out of their comfort zone a long way and into your zone where they're not medically supposed to be, you know? So you, you, you could yeah. end up, you could end up with a problem on your hands where they're actually suffering altitude sickness maybe not entirely telling you that that's why they don't want to get up. And if you're saying, would you come on? Like, and you guilt them into it. And then, you know, half an hour later, they're in a serious problem. So you kind of, you're doing your best to say, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Rather than, Ara, come on, would you ever get up? You know? And like, at that point in, so 17 of you, how far away from the summit are you when kind of you say, all right, let's, get a little break and food into us before we push so we t- we've taken a few um it's a long old summit day it's about a i don't know it's maybe a 12 13 hour summit day so Jesus. you're you're we've taken a good few 
breaks along the way and um, ah, we were about maybe two hours from the top. So we weren't that far in oh. absolute terms, but we were high and we could feel it, you know. And when, okay. you, sit, when you sit down, the glory of sitting down, <laughs> you know, when you've been on your feet for so long, you think, oh, this is nice. I don't, I, sure, if we could just stay here a bit longer, um, but you know, you either have to go up or go down. It's it's not a place to stay. So yeah, some of the guys just couldn't find the energy that you need, and you need like a lot of it for the remaining two hours, and then you've got maybe four hours after that to get back down to high camp. So yeah. it's it's a kind of looking ahead and seeing have you got all of that in the fire, or do you not have that much energy about you? So now is a good time to stop. But yeah, uh, seven of us headed for the top. One guy was struggling. He kind of crawled onto the summit. Um, one of the English lads that was with us in the team. And yeah, um, seven of us got up there and we felt 100%, you know, really felt great. We had a, we had a German lad with us who, who we, I, I was living in Berlin at the time and I had a lad training me in the gym and he got so fascinated with the mission that he decided to go. <laughs> so, so he was on the mission with us and he was a superstar. So he got up yeah. on the summit and he was doing handstands on the summit, you know, so that's how good we were feeling. And then you get about an hour off the summit and then you start to feel drained and really, really tired and exhausted. And you're thinking, right, is this camp ever going to show up? Um, and you're just, it's a long, long plod then back down to the camp and you're kind of falling into the camp exhausted and sleeping and back up and all your energy comes back again. So it was a really, really, really hard summit day. I'd say maybe one of the hardest we'd had. Um, so, but again, it's another point of experience, you know, like, yeah. What do you like when you're ultra exhausted? What does that tell you about what you need to do in terms of your training? Uh, what do you need to change so you don't feel like that the next time? Can you recognize the symptoms in yourself or other people around you, or are you blind to them? And if you're blind to them, you need to know that because then you need the people beside you to know that that's how you are at altitude and they need to watch you. What? You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you are carrying a part of you with you. So what's the toilet situation like? <laughs> The toilet situation is interesting. Um, a lot of these mountains are clean mountains, so you have to bring it all with you. Um, so, you know, taking a pee, obviously you're not going to bring that with you. There'd be too much weight. But when you do, you know, go for a crap on the mountain, you're bagging it and you're putting it in there. And overnight it's going to freeze and it's a bit of weight. And then that's what you're bringing back down the mountain with you. Jesus. Yeah. That's mad. On Denali, they, they give you a uh, they give you a can on Denali when you start, and basically that's your your toilet. So it's like a can, um, and basically they gave you a load of bags that that you, you you poo into. So you basically put the can down, you put the bag on the can, and that's what you're you're gonna perform into, you know. Um, but you've got to bring it all back off you. You can't be just like leaving all that stuff on the mountain. It's just not acceptable nowadays. So Someone you get it up when you get to the bottom. Yeah, you, you've got to, you've got to hand it in and. Um, so sometimes it's weighed I don't think it was weighed for us but you get fined if you don't bring back you know and, and are seen to bring back all your stuff now there was, there was an interesting thing happened in the year we were there there was a lad um, Argentinian lad who was trying to he was trying to raise funds to go and climb Everest and so he was running up and down Aconcagua kind of a superman and he was raising money by going around to all the teams and basically volunteering himself to bring everyone's crap down the mountain. Now, you can imagine he was a very popular man. 
<laughs> I'd say there's a couple of nicknames that were bestowed upon him. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. <laughs> That's mental. I would have never thought that. And I've never heard anyone that has done uh, so, like someone to like Everest rant and talk about their, their number two is like... Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, at certain camps, there'll be kind of like a semi-permanent toilet there where someone has bought up like a you know, a porcelain toilet and put it down at some point. So you might find that at the ranger station at the camp at 14,000 meters. And so you go over to that and you can have the most scenic experience of a number two you've ever had in your life. Um, but like on, a, on, on a, certainly on Denali and, and, and Akinkagwe, you've got to bring it back off you. L- less so on the other mountains. Um, I don't remember that being the case on Elvers. But the lucky thing, well, it, I suppose it's lucky, but it's not. Um, as you're climbing, you, you, I mentioned you lose your appetite a bit. So, you know, your propensity to want to go to the toilet a lot reduces. So maybe that's a kind of a karmic way of providing balance. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so so you, you've now conquered five of the seven. Five of the seven done. So, so it's getting serious Antar- now. Antarctica and Everest are the two remaining by my count. That's right, yeah. Um, Antarctica and Everest left. Biggies for a lot of reason. Like they're both big expeditions. They're both incredibly expensive and they both take a heck of a long time to to plan for and train for so i i decided right look i've got these mountains ahead of me um how am i going to get the time and energy now to do this because it takes an awful lot like in the build-up to denali and in the build-up to Aconcagua, it's every weekend training is training every holiday in the year every vacation time from work is training of some sort. You're either going to the Alps to train or you're going to a mountain somewhere to train. So you're using all your free time and it's not going to be enough for the likes of, you know, Antarctica and, and Everest. So I decided that I was going to quit work in twenty at the end of 2012 and I was going to take all of 2013 out and train properly and do the two of them. And I was going to do them back to back. So I was going to Jesus do... Jesus, three. I was going to do um, uh, Antarctica at the end of 2013, start of 2014. So December, January, and then I was going to come back off that in January and roll straight into Everest that April. So I would get the benefit of because one of the hardest things in these seven is that when you come back from a mountain, you'll have a period unless you're continuously doing treks where you do nothing for a while and then your fitness just dies away and then you've got to start it again. And every year you're a year older, so it's a little bit harder to start again and all the rest of it. So um, for these ones, I just I wanted to bag the same value from training for both of them if I could. Um, so I, I took the year out in 2013. I moved, I was in Berlin at the time, so I moved back to Dublin, um, trained in Dublin for a little bit. Um, and then I moved down to the University of Limerick. And I'd been to UL to college in UL and I knew the people down there and they have an altitude house on campus or they did have an altitude house on campus. So in one of their student villages on the campus, one of the houses on the corner is an altitude house. So when you open the door, the air in there is not the same as the air out here. So so basically what they do is they basically um, filter the oxygen going into the house or the air going into the house to take a lot of the oxygen out of it. And so what they pump in is an oxygen low environment so it, it they can make it the equivalent of 2000 meters 3000 meters 4000 i was at 6000 meters at one point so basically i lived in that house for the best part of 2013 um they would i i would uh, get up in the morning 
um, I would have some tests done by the physiologist at UL. They'd come in every morning. Um, then I'd go out into the arena in UL and I'd train, do my endurance training, my strength training, do whatever I needed to do for the day. And then at five o'clock in the evening, they would switch on the house. And so from five o'clock in the uh, late afternoon until nine o'clock in the morning, I was at altitude. And we would start like modest 2,000 meters and then we would slowly build up and then come back down and then build up and come back down. And every six weeks or so, doctor would come in and jab syringe into my arm and take some blood and see how everything's going. And they'd do some scans and they'd put me up on a treadmill and run the heck out of me and see what happens. So I became a very, very willing lab rat for this experiment at UL, which was fascinating. Like I find the science- That is so fascinating. Fascinating. So the, the, the lady that was doing the, the altitude work with me, Rachel, you know, she is a, the high altitude expert. So she would basically look at how my bloods and how my system is reacting to varying degrees of altitude over time. And then she would be able to inform the trainers to say, well, look at when you're training them for endurance, just be aware of this or be aware of that or train them in these ranges to get the most out of them. So it was my first exposure to how you would do this properly if you were doing it. Um, and it was fantastic. It was really, really awesome. So I spent the whole of 2013 doing that. In the summertime, I went to the Alps and I'd done an advanced Alpine skills course to top up my skills. Um, then went and climbed about 12 peaks, went back up Mont Blanc on my own this time. Um, so I really felt like I'd come on in leaps and bounds from where I had been in the previous years where I'd started that sort of adventure. I was, I was becoming an awful lot more self-sufficient now. Um, and by the end of the year, we were ready to go and uh, it was down to Antarctica. So uh, to get to Antarctica, you've got a, at least the route we went, um, you fly down to uh, Chile and you fly down to the very bottom to a place called Punta Arenas. And from Punta Arenas, you take a military transport plane, Russian military transport plane, from the very tip of South America down to an American research station called Union Glacier. And it lands on the Blue Ice Runway, this huge, huge airplane lands on the Blue Ice Runway, and basically you get off, you spend a couple of days at the at the Union Glacier Station, and then a small twin otter plane comes, collects you, and flies you to the base camp, and then it flies away, and it's gone for two weeks. So that's you on the mountain now to climb Vincent Massive for two weeks. It's kind of the same experience as we had on Denali, just a heck of a lot more remote. Yeah. So that's mountain. So, so right, you're, you're, you're a couple of hundred miles from the South Pole then. Or give or take. That's right. So obviously the conditions will be completely different than anything you've experienced in terms of what it was. It was the equivalent of summer there, was it? When you were doing, you said January, summer. was it? That's right. It was so, uh, twenty-four hours daylight. Yeah, I was going to say. So how? Because I, I, I trying to sleep in that alone would be a challenge, I'd imagine. We had a bit of that in Denali as well, um, where it never really got altogether dark. Um, mm. But yeah. Um, Trying to sleep can be, so you've got to bring something to cover your eyes because it can be difficult to sleep. It can be difficult to work out what time it is at any particular time because the, the weather, the, it never it never gets partially dark in the way that it does, let's say, in Alaska. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was sun, we landed at, I think, three in the morning and it was like the middle of the day. Um, and it stayed the middle of the day forever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, if you looked in one direction, it looked exactly how you imagine, you know, being in Antarctica, flat, as far as you could see to the pole, I guess. And if you turned around, there was a U-shape of mountains that were as big as the Alps. And like, I'd never really thought about Antarctica as having 
real mountains. It has yeah. not only is it real mountains, it has mountains that are bigger than the Alps. Um, it's I think it's on average the highest continent in the world in terms of the average altitude. So it's 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 there's an incredible amount of mountains down there, most of which have never been climbed. Um, so yeah, that part of it is surprising, you know, and, and refreshing to see that there's a whole new way of looking at Antarctica as well. So. What's the process for climbing it then? Is it it's it's much like any other ones, or is there extra challenges involved just given the the, the, the physiology of everything down there? It's um, very similar to Denali. Uh, you've got a sled. You're basically carrying loads. You're making two trips to build your camps. You're slowly progressing up along. You're bringing your magic can with you as well, so it's a clean mountain as well. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's some rope work to get up to to the high camp. So you're basically on a fixed rope system at one stage with a jumar, just basically pushing it up ahead of you on the rope and then pulling yourself up the rope. So there's a lot of there's a, like with Denali, there's a lot of upper body strength required on that one that might not be required, let's say, on the likes of Aconcagua, where you're on a rope and you're going to be like basically pulling your body weight at times up the rope. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's not incredibly technical, but there are technical elements to it. But it's ice and snow, it's crevasses. So the danger of falling into crevasses, just like with Denali, exists. So you're, you're roped together in teams. You're very wary when you're crossing certain parts that you're on, you know, glass ice. You're on ice that you can see water moving at times underneath it. And so you're moving fast in certain sections, slower in others. Um, but it's very... As an experience, it's very like Denali. And you, you mentioned there, so the crevasses, rope work, all these things, all of these sort of things are going to be part of when you eventually go for Everest as well. Exactly. So, so when you're saying you're looking at this as a back-to-back sort of mission, how, like, I'm just curious in terms of, because, like, the, the crevasses can be endlessly deep. You're saying there, you look at one point and under the ice, you can see moving water and all. Like, Do you start to question yourself and go, why the fuck am I doing this? Oh, you're doing that constantly. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. At that point, like uh, we built ourselves up from the winter skills courses that we'd done before we went to Elbrus to then taking that experience onto Denali to you know perfecting that experience more through alpine skills courses and advanced alpine skills courses in the Alps. So we felt fairly confident in our surroundings and with our gear. And the reason why that was a, a kind of, that was a warm up for Everest because now I had the Everest gear as well. So a lot of the gear that I'd had on Denali or I'd had on Aconcagua, you know, isn't sufficient. Now we're in bigger gear. The boots are bigger. You know, the jackets are bigger. Everything is bigger now. So you're taking all of the gear that you're going to bring to Everest and you're doing a lot of gear management and practice on Antarctica because part of the mission that you've got to plan, you know, to the nth degree is your gear and your gear management. You need to be in control of every little aspect of your gear from packing it to knowing how to use it to knowing which parts to layer, which parts not to layer on particular days, depending on temperature. So, you know, all of that, we're just dialing as we go along in Antarctica to make sure that, okay, these boots, which are now new boots, so you, you invest in these huge Everest boots now, um, you know, am I comfortable in these? What are my feet doing in these? How are they reacting to the crampons? Do I need more, uh, more practice, let's say, or more training on my ankles in these? or on my feet in these than I did in the previous ones. So you're just watching everything as you go along. You're seeing whether you feel cold. You know, I've got a, an incredibly expensive down suit on. Does this thing make me too warm or warm enough? 
what do I do if I'm too warm? Now I'm too warm. Five minutes ago, I was too cold. You know, so you're just working out all of that gear management as you go along. So that bit of it is absolutely crucial. Um, so in that re- we felt in terms of our terrain, in terms of the crevasses, in terms of the rope work, in terms of the skill we needed there, we felt completely on top of things um, and confident. I'd say for the first time, maybe since we got down off Denali and felt we might have a go at this, it, there was a feeling that, right, we might not just have a go at this, we might actually be able for this. So then you you do conquer Antarctica and the back-to-back mission and the potential of seven summits is very, very real. You aim for Everest in April, May, but as some people might remember, 2014 on Everest didn't go to plan. No, didn't go to plan. Um, we landed in beginning of April. We'd done our 20 days of getting to base camp very slowly. Um, usually you can get to base camp in a week or 10 days if you're on a normal trek we take about 20 days because we climb a peak or two on the way and we were climbing our big adaptation peak which was about 6,000 meters so it's about the same altitude as camp one we were climbing that the day that the disaster happened Um, it's a peak called um, Le Bouget and we were up on top of that peak it's about 6,100 meters and it looks directly down into base camp and straight across from you, you can see Everest and Lutze. Um, and unbeknownst to us, while we were coming up onto that peak, a massive Serac had released on the icefall between base camp and camp one, um, while a load of Sherpa were traveling from base camp to camp one to stock the camp ahead of the start of the season. Um, and there was a bunch of maybe about 20 or more of them traveling in unison. And this Serac released and started to thunder down the icefall um, and it, it killed 16 of them and it badly injured about half a dozen more. Yeah. And then obviously with something like that, and I suppose one of the things when you're, you're mentioning kind of, you know, uh, lots, lots faced and, and the ice fall and that to, to kind of give people an idea, like they'd be seen as probably the, the challenge, really, really challenging parts of Everest and the, the yeah. ice fall is constantly moving. That's right. So, they did. The icefall is kind of like a, it's a frozen waterfall sitting on a moving glacier. That's the best way to think of it. Um, so it's basically, it's a lot of fun to be in because it looks like a big ice park where there's just these towers of ice everywhere around and you're kind of weaving in and out of these towers to get up, crossing crevasses with ladders. It's all very exciting and dynamic, but it's incredibly dangerous because it's all very slowly moving. And on any particular day, it can move to an extent that part of it collapses um, and now you have to rebuild the route through the icefall. So the icefall is probably one of the most dangerous parts of the entire trip. Uh, and in order for to get climbers from base camp up to camp one, a team of experts called the icefall doctors, which is a team of Sherpa, uh, will build a route for that year through the icefall. And every year they'll build a slightly different route. It may be more to the left or to the right. If you go more to the right of the icefall, You've got uh, rocks coming down off the neighboring mountains that tend to be a risk on that side. So they tended to keep away into the left. And the year we were doing it, the route was very much to the left. And the the Serac that collapsed, collapsed off the left side, off the left shoulder um, of the icefall. Um, so the icefall is full of hazards. It's full of, you know, the hazard of falling into a crevasse off a ladder. It's full of the hazards of part of a wall of ice to your right or to your left collapsing as you're walking past it. Uh, so you, you, your your alertness is 
at its highest going through the icefall. And when you're climbing Everest, you're going to go through the icefall, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, maybe six times, if not more. Jeez. So it's, it's, it's always a take a deep breath, let's go. Um, and, you know, you're going to spend five, six hours in the icefall each time, potentially. So you, you are at, at an acute level of awareness and heightened kind of, you know, drama going through there each time. Mm. Was so, there any so risky, you, risky moments at all? Like? For us, um, we, we got through the icefall in the second year, most of it, and we didn't have too much risk because the pathway, the route built was fantastic. The ladders are always risky in that, you know, everyone approaches the ladders and looks down. It's the first thing you do. You look down and you go, Jesus Christ. Um, but <laughs> du- during the preparation in UL, I'd actually, I got, I went to b and I went to, I don't know it was a B&Q, but I went to one of the hardware stores and I got a ladder, aluminium ladder, which is the exact same ones they use in the icefall. And I'd set it up in the arena in UL and I'd put two big uh, blocks on either side and I'd put the ladder up maybe at about four foot level. So high enough that if you fell, you know, if you put yeah, it too yeah. low, you, you don't care. So high enough that you care about not falling off it. Um, and I would spend my Saturdays, which was my rest day, basically with the crampons on my boots up on that ladder, walking over and back and over and back. And actually, because I was doing that so much, I figured out that the back of the crampons had a little tiny metallic lip that used to get caught on the, on the serrations on the bottom of each step. So I got the angle grinder out, grind that off, try it again. Now it's perfect. Okay, now your crampons are ready to go. So it was all the small details. The Munster rugby team were training right across from me. So I used to get visitors over the odd time to look at me and say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so it's a, great way of, it's a great way of attracting attention if you don't fall off. But, but um, So I'd done a lot of training. So by the time I hit the ladders, I knew, I knew my method for getting across the ladders. And but I didn't everyone find the ladders. this as well, Paul? Some people do and some people don't. And I'm sure you know from talking to Ian about it, Ian Taylor about it, that Everest is full of a mixture of people. There's there's the extremely experienced, there's the horribly inexperienced. There's the people who take it so seriously that they their attention to detail is incredible. There's the people who think, ah, this will be fine, sure, I'll have a Sherpa beside me, you know. But so some people were grand and some people were clinging on for dear life. I didn't find the ladders too bad, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but that was partly because I had maybe mentally I had... I dialed myself into what to expect and how to get across them. So if, but just to, to jump back for a second, so you guys were about 6,000 metres up doing one of your kind of, uh, you know, almost like a training summit to kind of, in the build-up for, for going at Everest. You're up there as this avalanche hits and unfortunately kills a number of Sherpa. That season cancelled essentially for anybody hoping to to summit Everest that year so so what happens for you guys then so we um we're up there we don't realize it's happened because there's a you hear a lot of little avalanches the whole time you're in Everest the whole time you're at base camp you hear them everywhere so we don't realize till we come back down into the village and then we were going to go to base camp the next day and of course like our Sherpa it's a small community so they know yeah. the people involved. They know the families, the people involved. It could be their uncle. It could be their, you know, cousin. So they're in an incredible level of, of worry. All of us are aware that this is big and it's bigger than it's ever been. So this is a big event. So we went into base camp the next day. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what the folks there wanted to have happen. Um, the, the rescue was just coming to a, an end point at that point because they, they found 13 of the guys Three of the guys have never been found. 
and, and they're still there somewhere, which is, you know, especially for that culture is an incredibly sad thing because it's important in that culture to get the person back and to cremate the body and to allow the soul then to be released. So it, it creates an, an extra level of trauma for the family if they can't get the person back, as it does, I think, for all cultures, but especially, I think, in that culture as well. That, that must be extremely challenging then because, like, you know, one of the morbid sides of Everest is kind of that mountain plays for keeps. Like, if you yeah. perish on that mountain, you're kind of staying there. So yeah. f- for those guys to, if, if tragedy does visit them while they're up there, you know, the pressure that must put then on potentially family members, friends, fellow community members to, to try yeah. and get them back down for that culture. Jesus, that's it's a big it's, game. Like. It's a big risk, big reward game in Nepal. Um, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of folks who do this work in Nepal, um, and most of them are Sherpa, not all people, not all Nepalese people who work in the mountains are Sherpa. Yeah. Um, so, but a lot are. So for a lot of the workers, whether they're Sherpa or not, um, there's a big payday at the end of the season as well. That's required in order to keep their kids in colleges and schools, because a lot of them will be putting their children through education. They're the first generation to do that. So they're looking to lift the floor for everyone. And so if the if the breadwinner falls, it's not just the house that suffers. It's the neighborhood that suffers. It's the community that suffers. So, you know, and they will rally around. And a lot of the a lot of the expedition companies, Western, Eastern, wherever they're from, will also rally around and figure out a way that the families and the community can be can be basically looked after. And when yeah. we got into base camp, the debate was around that. The debate was around yeah. what's going to happen now. And it turned into the biggest industrial dispute in the world. It turned into a full all-out Sherpa strike at base camp where the government were offering recompense to the families that was abysmal. It was tiny, awful. Uh, and the Sherpa just decided, look it, we have no helicopter to support here when we need it. If there's a disaster, we have no insurance, we have no yada, 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 yada. Enough is enough. And they decided to go on strike. Uh, we had government officials. I passed by and spoke to the minister at one stage when I was walking through the center of base camp during that whole thing. And we ended up in this in this dramatic scene where there were big industrial dispute meetings happening in the middle of base camp, right across from where our tents were. Then there would be lots of noise. We would find out a little bit about what happened. The next day, there'd be another meeting. The next day, there'd be a helicopter bringing people down to negotiate with the department in Kathmandu. The next day, the department are coming up to base camp to negotiate with the Sherpas in base camp. And then eventually, about five days later, um, the, the team started to pull out and it was clear, that's it. Nobody wants to go up the mountain. And we'd left it to our Sherpa. We'd said, look, what do you want to do? Do you want to continue? Do you want to go home? Because for a lot of them, they didn't want to walk up past what had happened. I'm not sure we did, to be honest, yeah, either. Yeah. Um, so th- there, was the, there was the religious aspect of it from their side. There was the logistical aspect of it for the whole community of Sherpa's side. And then there was what is the right thing to do here for this season. So a number of things all came together, including a dispute with the Sherpa and the government, and the season was cancelled for the first time uh, on the south well, side. It wasn't cancelled on the it wasn't cancelled on the Tibet side, but it was on the Nepal yeah. side. So by the twenty fifth of April, twenty five days into the mission, that's it. Go home. So I'm conscious we've 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 kept you for a long time here, but just it's it's some fucking story to be honest with you, Tanley. Yeah. Um, so you try it a second time. Was it a year later? 
a year later, so went back, decided to go back to UL, decided to go back to the house, decided to do all the training again. Um, and, this, and it wasn't an easy decision because I'm a long time out of work then at that point. So going yeah. back into the workforce was a priority. Getting the money together is a big priority. How am I going to do this? And I felt like there's a certain amount of momentum here that I either stay with this now and see does it work? Because honestly, what are the chances of something big happening two years in a row? You know, the mountain had never been closed before. It was closed that year. Now we're into 2015, went back in 2015, felt amazing in 2015. I changed up the training, done a lot more endurance work, felt 100%. We got into camp. We even got into the ice fall this year, which was amazing. Um, Got through the ice fall most of the way to camp one on our look-see kind of advanced trip. We came back to base camp. We were getting ready to go that night to camp one on our first rotation. So you go up the mountain in rotations. You go up to camp one, then back to base camp, then stay a few days. Then you go camp one, camp two, spend a couple of nights there, then back to base camp, then camp one, camp two, camp three, a couple of nights there, back to camp two, back to camp one. So you climb the mountain a couple of times, waiting for the window then in sort of mid-May, right? So we were heading for our first one of those rotations on about the 25th of of April. And then 11 o'clock in the morning, we're sitting in, basically just playing cards, relaxing after being through the ice fall that night. Um, and everything started to move. The table started to move that we we're sitting at. Then we realized it's not just the table moving, everything's moving. And I grabbed the camera and ran outside and the entire Kumba Valley was on the move. And it's hard to describe what that feels like because we'd lost our point of reference. There was nothing still, everything was moving. And the, the, the glacier we were on was sliding laterally. And we're just trying to figure out, because every time we heard something big, we always thought, well, that's an avalanche coming off, let's say, that's an avalanche coming off, let's say, something like that. We went out, we're looking for the avalanche, and it's fairly overcast, and we're at the bottom of the icefall, our camp, right at the bottom of the icefall. So all we could think of was, oh, crap, the icefall is collapsing, and it's coming. So what are we going to do here? Um, So we couldn't see it, and we're looking up into the icefall, thinking it's coming from there, and... Before we knew it, we turned around and there was a wall of white coming at us from behind. And what had happened was there had been an earthquake, 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Um, It had shaken the whole region. And behind us, it had shaken a big serac off the mountains that were right behind us, which are a long way away, by the way. They're hours away. Um, And the top of the mountain, the the big serac had collapsed about 1,000 meters. It had hit a plateau around the same altitude as base camp, and it had caused a shockwave and an avalanche that just kept moving and moving and moving at speed. And then it started to pick up everything that it found, rocks, then it found tents, then it found kitchen equipment, then it found people, and it just started to throw everything in the middle of the camp in every direction. So that's when we looked around, that's what we saw coming at us. And we just dived straight into the tent and under the table to try and get get safe from it. Jesus. So, Paul, come here. Well, like, why do you do it? <laughs> Just, just, just describe to us like why you do it and what's the feeling of when you do do it, when you complete it. I guess I do any of it because I, I, I like the balance I get from being out in the mountains versus the intensity of work. So when I get out into the mountains, I'm able to relax in a way that I don't otherwise. I'm able to clear my head in a way that I don't otherwise. Now, I can get that from hiking. But when I get above the clouds, there's a feeling of kind of being disconnected from everything and being able to just let yourself relax that I find very different from any other experience in the outdoors or the indoors. 
So that's kind of why I like the outdoors and why I like mountains and, and mountaineering. I mean, it's preposterous to like doing the sort of stuff like Everest because it's subjectively incredibly dangerous. Um, I like the challenge of, you know, put, putting yourself against altitude and seeing how you do. But I, I, I take on that challenge in the knowledge of what altitude can do to you. So I, on, I only go after it when I feel like I'm not just aimlessly going to kill myself here. You know, I've yeah. built up to it and I'm always doing it to have a shot at it, not with the view that I'm actually going to be able to do it. I don't know whether I'd ever be able to climb Everest, but I know when I'm conditioned enough to have a go. And I like the challenge of having a go at those things um, and pushing yourself kind of outside that sort of normal boundary. So two attempts at Everest, both times kind of taken away from you in circumstances completely outside of anybody's control. Will there be an attempt for tour times of charm? There will, yeah. Um, which again seems preposterous. Um, <laughs> back uh, down to Limerick in the house. Back down to Limerick in the house. There will, but I, I have to do it differently because I, I came back and I started my own little thing here work-wise and you know, when I'm not working, my company's not operating. So um, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it while I'm working most of the time up towards yeah. it. I can't, I don't have the luxury of taking time off again. That window was there, that window's gone. So I have to construct a different type of window. I'm older now, so I have to work harder on being fitter. Um, and the mountain has changed as well. There's a lot more people there than there was in 2014 and 2015. And there's yeah, the whole... The photos of people basically queuing to, to get at the summit went viral there. It was the last two years or two years ago, yeah. Yeah, last year, and um, 2019. The, the weather can be fantastic as it was in 2018 when there was weeks of summits, or it can be incredibly narrow where the you know like it was last year. And if it's incredibly hmm. narrow, everyone's going for the same window in the middle of May. And that's happened a couple of times. It happened in 2012, just as bad as it happened last year. Maybe there wasn't the same amount of people, but there was the same big lines. And then yeah. you had years like 2018, 2017, where it didn't happen at all. Um, so you, you've got to get really lucky with the year, which you have no control over. But, you know, if the climate is changing over there and if the mountain is changing, it's likely that the weather is going to be more unpredictable every year. Yeah. And you put on top of that the fact that, you know, last year there was over 800 summits. Um, there's going to be over 1,000 summits potentially this year. There's going to be a heck of a lot. If coronavirus doesn't, you know, prevent people from going and doing it, there's going to be maybe 1,500 people at base camp trying to climb this mountain. That's an insane amount of people. Yeah, so yeah. contending with the unpredictability of, of queues with a heck of a lot of inexperience in the queues is a whole new level of risk. So I've got to figure out how do I move around that risk? How do I train to get around the queues? Do I focus on the north side rather than the south side? Um, you know, there's different techniques that I'll have to look at to try and deal with the fact that you could, no matter what you do, you could be stuck in a line trying to get up that mountain for hours. And what do you do if that happens? And when do you call it? And all the yeah. rest of those decisions that you need to train yourself to make. So I, I, at the moment, in order to get back there, hopefully maybe next year, um, I have to put mountains between me and that and that summit. I have to work out now how to get a good 7,000 meter, 7,500 meter, maybe get up onto an 8,000 meter peak between now and Everest and work out, you know, what's my physiology like? Where are my weaknesses? Am I really ready for this? 
Can I deal with crowds if they come? Um, all the rest of it. And so it does, it changes the amount of training you have to do. It makes it a more complex offering now than it was back in 2014 to 15. The mountain is still every bit as dangerous as it was before, but just more people just increases the, the risk level, you know. Would you have any kind of interest or has anybody approached you about maybe like doing some sort of kind of documentary type thing if you were going to go for it a tour time? I, I would be interested to an extent. Um, one of the things I'd like to do on the third time is just when, when you're going up through the Cumber Valley and you're in all the tea houses and you're enjoying the, the kind of preamble before the serious bit starts, you look around you and everyone is just furiously trying to get internet and then furiously trying to do updates. And they're all making themselves a little bit ill every time and trying to do it because they're just, there's never any good internet. It's always crap, right? So they're just on it, then they're off it, then they're on it, they're off it. They're getting really annoyed. They're going to bed annoyed. They're draining all the energy out of the system. They're using all of the energy that they should be using for something else for, you know, updates. And I think if I was doing it again, I'd try and find a way where you can, where you can keep people informed, but do it in the most minimal way possible without having just been surrounded by tech because, you do you do these mountains in part to get away, to kind of detach. And when you're in yeah. the expedition, the beauty of the expedition is being in it. If you're constantly then bounced back to home for whatever reasons, you disconnect from the, the, the mission. And and that can be, it can be really hard to get your head back into something that's probably the most serious thing you're ever going to do in your life. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for trying to keep people connected to the mountain while they're on the mountain. And it's getting harder and harder to do that. Jesus, yeah. Well, Paul, it's, it's a hell of a story you have. And um, if if you are going to go for that tour piece, man, Jesus, it, it'll put some final chapter on it. But even without it, it's something else. Um, thanks, man, for, for talking to us about yeah. it. Yeah, incredible stuff. Like, um, You'd be the first Longford man, I presume, to climb Everest anyway, would you? I would, yeah. Yeah. Um, Next year has an appeal because um, from the Midlands perspective, the first lad to ever lead an expedition to look at Everest was a lad called Charles Howard Bury, and he was from Westmead. Um, And he led the 1921 expedition um, that had Mallory on it. Yeah. Uh, Now, by all accounts, Mallory hated him because he was an awful dick altogether. But (laughs) but he was uh, was from Belvedere House near Mullingar. Uh, So there's a little bit of history kind of linking the Midlands to, to the whole thing and um edmund hillary's grandmother was a longford woman so you know there's a little bit of history there as well Jesus, yeah there is there's something calling to the mountain there all right man yeah. really um well look whatever comes next regardless paul we wish you all the best for that and um we'd love to get you back on if you are going to make a tour attempt and let us know how you get on or how, how things are progressing because as i said it's a hell of a story and uh look all we can do is wish you the best for whatever comes next to it, man because it's, it's fucking some achievement you've got like Thanks very much, lads. Really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. If people Thanks, want to learn more about it and if they want to follow you on, online and that kind of thing, where, where can they get you and where can they find um, out more what you're up to? Best way to do it is to go to irish7summits.com uh, where they, there's a bit of a history on there of the Irish that have climbed Everest or climbed the 8,000-meter peaks or Irish 7 Summits on Facebook or at Irish 7 Summits on Twitter. Brilliant, brilliant. Paul, once again, thanks so much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Paul. All Good the luck. best. I'd love to try and go to base camp one day would you I w- I'd never do it yeah. I'd say, to... do you have the balls to do it no I don't I, I, I don't have anywhere near like when he spoke about kind of the, the two times that he's been 
there to try and climb Everest. Two years in a row, this massive disaster happens. Yeah. Then he's talking about kind of the change in face of the mountain and the change, like just with climate and everything else. Yeah. And I'm like, I I respect the shit out of anybody who goes, I'm going for it. I'm like, you know what I mean? Especially when they put the work yeah. in. But then there's a part of me that's like, Jesus, my sofa's comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? There has to be I, something on Netflix I can watch. I am I am very much built for comfort, not for shitting into a tin. Yeah. Um, so, what I, that what was I, not, like that was, I'm sorry, man, I have to say though, that was, I I loved that. I loved all one hour and fifteen odd minutes or sixteen odd minutes. Uh, Paul, absolutely, absolutely gentle this time, but a fascinating individual. I always find them, the, the, um, explorers and mountaineers like that, um, so interesting. Um, but I also find like sometimes I'm kind of at the start of at, at the start of uh. Because like you, I can get into a rabbit hole and I can watch YouTube mm. clips and, and stuff like stuff like that and documentaries. And at the start of when I start watching them, it's kind of like, what's the point? And then when you finish listening to a podcast about them or if you listen, finish a, a documentary, you're kind of going, fair fucks, like, that's oh, deadly. Stop, man, yeah. I remember years ago when I worked um, in Friends First Finance, they brought us away for a weekend down to Mount Wilsley Hotel. And for the day, they had a conference and they had a speaker. I can't remember his name now, but he, he climbed Mount Everest. And this his, his talk was absolutely brilliant. Like, Yeah, yeah. These guys are, these guys, like, look, it takes takes a set of cojones to want to even try it. Like, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's a feat of endurance that I will forever envy in people, but never have the notions to try and tackle it myself. Like, Wow. So um, why would you need it? Um, well, this is it. But yeah, do let's take a look at Irish Seven Irish Seven Summits dot com um and give Paul a follow on Twitter as well. Uh fascinating stuff. And I, if he does go for the third crack at Everest next year, I'll be watching closely. I am um, I I texted during the week seeing what, what your stance was on the coronavirus. And yeah. you were like at that point there was one uh there was two um, confirmed uh, coronavirus. Yeah, go on, yeah. Yeah, there was two on the, confirmed on the island with coronavirus. So um, you yeah. said, I'll reassess at five. So yeah. as we're recording, there's four more uh, being confirmed but, in the West. Two, and, two, and, male, two male, two women uh, who came back from northern Italy. So now the toll is up to seven on the island. I was going to say, yeah, we've had, in one day, we've had, uh, well, in the space of 24 hours, we've had five confirmed in the Republic and two more confirmed in Northern Ireland. So we're actually oh, at eight. Sure. So two, we're actually two, at eight. Yeah, yeah, so we're actually at eight, at time of recording. But at the time people are listening to this, we could be up to 80. You know what I mean? <laughs> so how are so, you reassessing and reevaluating the situation? Um, so my reassessment, um, I actually, I got the push notification as we were recording with Paul to say that a like four people a cluster um, is how the post notification from the Irish Times put it had been confirmed as fallen foul of coronavirus so um, I swiftly sent a text message to the lovely Oksana to say change the shopping for delivery this week we're stocking up on tinned foods and dried pasta <laughs> I love it so I'm, that's how we're, we're going f- we're going full doomsday preppers in the Wonderful metropolis of Port Leash is what we're doing. So I'm going to stock up on dog food, 
for the dogs, not for me, because they're surviving the pending viral apocalypse as well. And uh, yeah, just a load of tin food coming in, big gallons of water, batting down the hatches. It's coming for us. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we thought we'd, we'd uh, stay clear of it, but no. Eight don't now. think so. Not, yeah, yeah, that's it. And it, the, the weird part is, like, panic, panic's going to kick in. But Ireland, Irish people in general, are not built for this kind of thing at all. We can't set the barometer past anything other than sure it'll be grand eventually. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think the coronavirus has anybody's brain in it'll be grand eventually mode in any way, shape or form. No, exactly. I, th- yeah. I, I think people are just looking at this and they're going to shit the bed and panic. But sure, look. Didn't we have Colonel Randall Larson on? On chapter... Oh, what was uh, that, 91? Was it, and oh. what did he say then? What was the significance of what he said? Well, Colonel Randall Larson worked with the man who uh, basically eradicated smallpox. And his whole thing was that, yeah, it's not going to be a war that comes and gets us. It's going to be some sort of flu-like virus. Much like the Spanish flu that took out more people than World War One a century ago. You can go back and listen to that one, lads. I think it's about chapter... It's like chapter 89, chapter 90, chapter 91, thereabouts. It's either side of our first podcast with PJ Gallagher. I can't remember it's which. That's just, it's just the bacteria spreading, isn't it? Uh, but sure, isn't that how all viruses spread, I suppose? I know, I just find it fascinating. Yeah, so lads, just don't be an arse. Just cough into your, you know what I mean? You can dab. If you can dab, <laughs> you can cough into your elbow, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do that, and this. You know, sneeze into it as well. Don't be sneezing all over things and all over people, you horrible shites which are germs. Absolutely. Tell you now, man. This never would have happened if Sinn Féin hadn't won the election. <laughs> it's all Jerry's fault. Or me, Mary Lou. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, That's I, I know. We'll, we'll, we'll look at doing an episode on coronavirus. If anybody's willing to talk about it, that, you know, won't just set Ireland on fire with mass hysteria. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. We we try to get Doctor Killian de Gascon on. I'll try to get him again, but he's in, yeah, as you can imagine, high demand. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Merlo, if people would like to tune in to two hundred episodes that preceded this wonderful episode, how and where can they do so? They can do so by going to any podcast provider and searching WTS Pod. Podcast providers such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Republic, Podbean, Stitcher, they're all there. You can also go to WTSPod.com and also on our Twitter page at WTSPod. He's at Dan Joe Murray. I am at Merigamania on all socials. And this has been What's the Story Podcast. Until next week. Remember to wash your hands thoroughly, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and Clear eyes. Do, do the sneeze that up. Do the sneeze that. that. Full hearts. Can't lose. That's you. Sweet. <laughs> That's you.